This podcast is not personal financial advice. You're listening to the Aussie Firebug Podcast, the financial independence podcast for Australians. Hey guys, welcome back to the Aussie Firebug Podcast, the financial independence pod for Aussies where I interview interesting people on topics relating to financial independence. I'm so excited for this one today. There's been a few potential super changes put forth by the Albanese government lately, and I wanted to get two different viewpoints on the podcast to debate the pros and cons of the changes or the potential changes. I also wanted to talk about super as a high level concept. What exactly is super? What is the purpose of super? Is super fulfilling its job, et cetera, et cetera? We have two returning guests joining in today's discussion, CIO of The Motley Fool, Australia, Scott Phillips, and economist, Dr. Cameron Murray. I'm playing moderator between these two as they give their different opinions on some of the following topics. What is the purpose of super? Is there an alternative to the super system? Are you for or against opening up super to allow members to buy a home? That's a very interesting conversation. Is confidence being eroded when the government keeps tinkering with the system? The proposed super caps, of course, and so much more. Now, just a word of warning, we recorded this podcast on the 28th of February, literally hours before Labor announced their super tax on balances over $3 million. So we do talk about the caps, which is in the news um, at the moment, but unfortunately, we didn't have that information during the podcast, so it's a little bit outdated. Now, this is a monster episode. We recorded for nearly two hours. So what we've decided to do is split it up into two episodes and this one, of course, being the first one. Now, that's enough from me. Before we jump into the episode, here is a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our partners at ShareSite, the number one portfolio tracking tool for Aussie investors. ShareSite makes it ridiculously simple with automatic holdings updates, comprehensive tax and performance reporting, wrapped up in an easy-to-use, fully cloud-based system. My favorite thing about using ShareSite is how easy it makes tax returns. Simply generate your tax report at the end of the financial year, and voila, you're done. And here's the best part. It's 100% free for users that have under 10 holdings. If you have over 10 holdings and want to sign up, make sure you use my link to get the first four months for free. Head over to aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site to receive this special offer. Even if you're signing up to the free plan, using that link will score you four months for free if you ever decide to own more than 10 holdings within 60 days. Finish tax time with a click of a button using ShareSite by signing up today. That's aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site for your free four months. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode. I'm very excited to introduce our next two guests and get stuck into what I'm sure will be an extremely interesting conversation about Australia's super system. Our first guest is the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool Australia, Scott Phillips. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Thank you. It's always good to be with you. I wouldn't say first guest, one of the two. One of the two. (laughs) One of the two. Yeah, our second guest is economist and co-host of the Fresh Economics Thinking podcast, Dr. Cameron Murray. Welcome back, Cam. Uh, Thanks for having me, Matt. Now, let's just get straight into the meat and potatoes, gents. I'm going to kick things off with MP Jim Chalmers, who is the current treasurer of Australia in the Albanese's government. He released or his team released a media publication last week where he proposed the objective of super be, and I quote, to preserve savings to deliver income for a dignified retirement alongside government support in an equitable and sustainable way, end quote. Cam, I'm going to pick on you first. Okay. Firstly, do you agree with this objective? And what do you think the role of super should be? Yeah, look, interesting starting point. 
there, Matt. I think the the question is really w- about diagnosing the problem before we sort of come up with the solution. Now, is the, it a problem that people who are able to save for retirement don't save for retirement? Now, I don't see that as being a major issue. You know, typically the, the issue we have is that a lot of people can't save for retirement or, you know, they have various relationship issues, life paths that aren't typical. And that's really sort of, for me, the problem definition. So I don't really see a problem being that people are terrible and won't save for themselves. I just, I just don't see that. Uh, as a huge issue because if you can save you will save people are very good at investing right and making money in the future the whole firebug um, movement right is about being self-sufficient for and and this is a group of people who, who aren't very high income earners typically or are very young so so for me um, it's fine as a as a um, as an ambition but it's not clear to me whether it's really diagnosed the issue very clearly so yeah, maybe maybe Scott's got a different take on it. Sure. Before I give it over to Scott, would you say though, Cam and Scott, jump in any time, mate. Thanks, mate. I wouldn't really think that the fire community is a good representation <laughs> of Australia, though. I'd say we're probably in the one percent, right? Of of income or of of, of no, attitude like mo- to yeah, being of, of, investing. I mean, I mean, this is. I'll kick it over, Scott. I want to hear what he has yeah. to say uh, first. So let's let's just go there, Mr. Phillips. So I reckon that most of this podcast, Cam and I are going to agree furiously, but disagree on the the how or the why or the way, which is ironic. Okay. So uh, it'll be a really fun conversation to have. I. I like Cam's. Uh, I disagree with the with the premise of your question. Very, very, uh, very uh, Scott Morrison, Julia Gillard. Um, I uh, uh, so I think I think the description to, to answer your direct question. I think we should talk about Cam's point, by the way. But to answer your direct question, I think I think the Chalmers definition is a pretty good one of what we should want superannuation to be. There is a lot of loaded language. I've had arguments with people on Twitter already about exactly that. What does dignified mean? What is equitable? Then it gets to equity, then it gets to fairness, then it gets to communism. Uh, if you let it run off in a, in a direction, it kind of goes for miles, right? So, but I think I think as, as, as much as those words are loaded, I actually think it's a pretty good definition. And by the way, there's going to be political stuff in this as well, right? Uh, so, so politics aside, uh, and I, I've done a little bit on Twitter, not to give myself a rap, but to get people to my Twitter account, but on kind of what I think, if you started from first principles, what would super look like? We'll get to that in a minute. But I think to your question directly, it's a very, very reasonable, decent way to define what you want super to be, leaving leaving plenty of room for defining some of the terms that Chalmers used and putting some brackets around what is equitable, what is dignified, how much is required, how equitable, uh, are we measuring outcomes or inputs, all that kind of stuff. And it's going to be a great conversation because I'm sure we'll get to some of those. But um, yeah, I think, I think as a starting point, if you're going to say, irrespective of political views, current structure, any of that sort of stuff, how would you design a retirement income system? Uh, I think if you are asking people to save for their own retirement, which we do in the current structure, um, then I think that's a pretty good definition, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think Scott, that that's the trick here, right? Are we defining a retirement income system like a policy setting for the yeah, whole right. of Australia or are we defining the purpose of one part of it that is, yes, yeah. in, in my view, not very good at doing most of the things that that sort of um, purpose uh, w- would say, and, and and that's where I think I really diverge, but probably from you and from a lot of people, is that if that's your ambition for a time a retirement income system, why why would you have superannuation? Like we we have invented insurance, we've have have invented insurance for thousands of years, where people pool their resources with other people for future uh to to cover future losses and superannuation the you know the big issue with it for me is that it doesn't do that 
right? An, an individual, you know, saving, it's just shifting income forward and backwards in time and there's a, a limit to what any individual can do for that. And it's the same with health insurance. We don't go, oh, you must save in your own private health insurance account, you know, if you have a heart attack at age 50 for surgery because we know it doesn't work because you need to pull resources across people. So, so yeah, maybe that definition is really good as a, a retirement income system, as a policy, you know, high-level thing. But then I think the next step down is, well, how would you do that? And for me, it wouldn't be force people to save, you know, especially people in their 20s whose incomes are probably the lowest in their lives and their expenses are possibly the highest. Uh, to save for some future point where they're already insured in retirement through the pension when their income's probably going to be higher. So anyway, that's sort of a bit of <laughs> context and big picture from me. And I'm not sure if you agree with that, Scott. Uh, I, it's great. So I, I kind of, I think, again, I said, I think you and I will agree on a lot, but actually probably end up in, in opposite positions at the end, ironically, which is kind of just a, <laughs> and it's kind of ideology. It's kind of like, you know, what's the role of society? What's the role of the individual? And there's kind of a lot of ideology there. I'm, I'm no I'm no hard right winger. I'm no, I'm no, you know, free market capitalism. I'm, I'm a fair market, well-regulated capitalism guy. And I think, but I think to, so a couple of quick things. I think my starting point is, and it's kind of, it's, it's again, it's the mirror image of, of insurance, not in terms of the opposite, but, but a different way of doing the same thing. My starting point, two thoughts, is I would start with, I think it's very, very fair and reasonable for those who are able, and that's effectively most of us with superannuation, to make provision for our own retirement rather than relying on the taxation revenue of future generations. Now, to be fair, I'm paying for my super and for my parents and grandparents. They're not alive, but you know, I mean, I'm paying for all the people's non-super right now. But as a as a transitionary mechanism, I think having a society where my working life has put aside funds for my retirement makes more sense than asking a future generation to pay for those. So I'd say that. I think the other thing on on how you would structure this, I've, I've made some other suggestions, by the way, about how that would, might work. In fact, I'd actually, we'll get to this later, I suppose, uh, but I, I'd actually start with, I would I would make an investment at birth um, because you point about the 20s, while it's absolutely right, Cam, and I agree 100%, it also takes advantage of, as, as the fire guys will know, um, and as you will know, it takes advantage of, of the extra couple of decades of compounding. So the, the, the amount of saving you have to do to catch up in your 40s and 50s, if you are going to say, and I know you don't necessarily agree with the premise, which is cool, but if you're going to say we have, we, we are going to, compulsorily or otherwise, save for our own retirement, uh, then starting in your 20s, the value of that over the couple of decades you don't wait is multiples more than if you had. So I, I don't mind starting at that point. Um, we get no opportunity cost and what else could the money be used for, for sure. And I'm, we'll probably go to some of that stuff, but I don't, I, I have no issue making it compulsory. I have no issue starting at the 20s. As I said, I would put aside 10 grand per person at birth um, and then effectively let that compound for 70 years rather than waiting until you're 20 and then slowly building that up. And you actually save a whole lot of stuff, which is a massive tangent. I don't know if you want to go there just yet, but um, there, there, are, there are other ways I would solve the, the the saving for retirement problem, which I think is more efficient and effective and less of a drag, but that's a whole different conversation for another time or for later in the podcast. Can I just, can I just butt in? I'll, I'll let you <laughs> respond. you think you are the host of this podcast or something? <laughs> We're having a conversation uh, yeah. here. Uh, let, let me, I just want to set the context because maybe some people out there listening, we've gone into another topic and I want to go back right. to super <laughs> eventually. No, no, no. This is great. I maybe should have started here, but I want to give the context for the listeners. So Cam, correct me if I'm wrong, I maybe just explain a little bit. You've written some material and you've published uh, books. You, you're actually in favor of scrapping the super system. Like I know we're talking about super at the moment yeah. and we'll get back to super and the proposed changes, but we, let's- Maybe we should have started here. Yeah. You're, you think super is 
inefficient and you wouldn't have the system. You'd have an alternative to the super system. So I just wanted to make that clear uh, for the listeners. So so maybe it's also worth recapping what superannuation is. It's essentially compulsory savings program with tax advantages. So that's what it is. And every worker currently puts, I think it's up to 10%. It's ratcheting up from 95 to 12% of their salary. It's only for employees. So if you own a business, you don't have to put in anything. If you make income from dividends, you don't have to put any of that aside. You know, so it's not a taxable income. It's from employment income only. Um, you have to put this money aside through your whole working life. So as a 17-year-old casual shelf stocker, at Woolworths, for some reason, the government thinks it's better for you to not have money now um, and have it, you know, maybe if you're still alive at age 60. So that's what the system is. And we throw a huge amount of tax advantages at it. And those tax advantages are skewed to the highest income earners, obviously, who can put the most in and who then have the highest balances in these investment accounts who make the most returns and get tax advantaged as well. So, which brings me back to the, my original point about, well, the people who can save for retirement don't need any tax advantages or compulsion to do it which is all super is. It's just tax advantages and compulsion for investment. And so the you know the people who can most take advantage of this don't need that, right? So that's what it is. And so my position essentially I, I in 2020 or 2019 I did a big deep dive and I and I'm looking at all this data and I'm seeing for example that for the bottom third of households when they age onto the age pension they get a pay rise, right? So the bottom third of households when they're a year younger than the age pension age, which used to be 65, they're making less money than what they make when they turn 65 and get the age pension, right? So the question is, why would those people be forced to have less money now in super when they're going to have more money when they're on the age pension? And, you know, they're, they're alive today, right? The probability of them aging you know, every year there's 10% or whatever the percent chance is that they don't survive the next year at those ages. So, so I, you know, my, my only conclusion from looking at all that data and the skew of the tax advantages to those who don't need compulsion or tax advantages to, to save or invest um, led me to the conclusion that there's, there's nothing being gained here. We should just give people their money back because the age pension's doing all the heavy lifting for retirement incomes and all the superannuation system is doing is skewing tax advantages up the income distribution and amplifying the inequalities of working life in retirement. So, uh, you know, and if we did that by saving all those taxes, you'd have more revenue to to be more generous with the age pension, potentially push the age back down from 67 to 65. You know, it was recently increased. And so, so that's where I'm coming from is that I just, once you dig into the the data there and, and all the projections are that this system is not really taking people off the age pension because because of that very reason that those who can save don't need it and those who can't save don't benefit from it, right? So anyway, that's that's where I'm coming from. And my only my only thought, so again, I think we're actually not miles away from each other in, in the way that it's implied. I think the only, well, not the only, maybe the major differentiator between Cameron and I is I think those criticisms are 100% valid. I think the, the so the, the challenge might be what are the range of better options or better choices. One, the Cameron's point is absolutely scrapping the whole lot. 
Uh, I have been very, very critical of the tax advantages, for example. So if we're saying, is the current system perfect? No. Should it be changed? Yes. I think we've got a unity ticket at that point. Yeah, to yeah. what is probably the, the yeah. more interesting conversation. So I think it's worth, and Cameron's not saying this, so I don't want to put words in that at all. You can speak for yourself, of course, Cam. But, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not saying he's necessarily wrong, but nor am I also saying that by, think, by saying I think super is useful and worthwhile and, and appropriate that it should exist in its current form. I would go further, again, we might get this, than the current government is, is projecting. I, ha- I have a range of improvements for superannuation, but I would keep it as a centrepiece in a far, vastly improved format. Cam would scrap it. I think that's, I think it was right to look at the criticism and say, hang on, this feels pretty broken. Yep, we're 100% agree. Then to what is also a really good conversation. I, I think that's where we differ. So we'll end up with, a, I think, a lot of agreement and then some potential changes where we say, actually, no, I have a different view for X, Y, Z reason. So- Maybe I, I'm keen to hear what what you think your ideal changes would be, Scott. Like, so if you were just prime minister for the day and everyone agreed, everyone in your everyone in your party just agreed to go along with what you said. Yes, you know, polling be damned. So you'd obviously so so currently you can just keep piling money into your fund, right, and get up mm-hmm. to ten million dollars yeah. and get or tax advantages. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. And yeah. The, the person Half with the a biggest dollars. Yeah, the person with the biggest fund in Australia is $400 million in a tax advantage. Fact, it's larger than that now, apparently. The most update number is 540 I think, from memory. It's that, that, it's that account that's grown by 25%, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So this, yeah. this yeah. person is one of the top 10 richest people in the country. Or, no, 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 not, not top 10, but it's, it's quite likely they are. So, you know, we should just name those people until yeah. they give up and <laughs> admit who it is. I did think when I, when I seen that figure, guys, I was like, how is – it isn't if you're at that level of wealth. I thought there was better, like, you know, I thought I just couldn't imagine someone had put it in super at that level of wealth. That was just insane to me. Pretty pretty bloody tax effective, I've got to say. Like, yeah. I, I'm not sure it's the best option, but it's not a bad one at all. The, and this is so, so Cam's point that the taxation of this stuff is ridiculous. Now, we should say quickly, some those rules have been changed, right? So you can't put that much in anymore. But the combination of intended and unintended consequences of previous government rule changes have allowed that to be the case. There are now maximum caps on contributions and a whole lot of other stuff that means you couldn't do it today, but it's been grandfathered. I think we – I like Cameron's example of bring, put, pull a billionaires in, in a classroom and don't let them go to lunch after the bell rings until someone acknowledges who it was. It's back in a – right, until someone owns up, you're all staying here. You're, you're, all, you're all in the tension. So I'll, I'll, if, if you're okay with you, I'll answer Matt Cam's question in terms of the solutions. Is that okay? Up to you. Yeah, Cam, did you have something to finish? No, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm keen to hear because, you know, Scott's one of the most reasonable voices on this. So I'm keen to really see how close we can get with his solution. <laughs> sure. And then whether he can convince me <laughs> not to just <laughs> get rid of the, the whole- that yeah, because because I think you know, do we do agree on, on a lot? And that's it's very rare in this circumstance. If you've seen the press in the last few weeks, everybody's just losing their mind. Everyone with over three million dollars in super has decided they're just uh, you know a hardworking uh, you know one <laughs> average Australian, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know just one 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 bad decision away from living in a cardboard box on the street or something. Exactly, we're taking their money, Cam. We're taking their money. What is the percentage of Australians with a balance over three million? It's, it surely couldn't be much of the. I've populace. heard reported 116,000 accounts is what I've heard reported. I don't, I can't qualify that number myself. I haven't done the work. So there's about um, about 14 million Aussies in the workforce would have a super account. So and and plus some retires. So about one two thirds of one percent, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Quick math. Very quick, Scott. Scott. Someone, will, someone will check me. The problem being it's been recorded. Someone will go, no, it's not even close to that. Uh, All right. So I have two. I have two opposing thoughts as to how we can fix superannuation. 
I don't want to make this about me, by the way, so I want to make sure Cam has enough time to jump in. My starting point is, as I said before, the principle is I, th- I would I would rather save for my retirement, have my my peers and my, my own age save for our own retirements rather than ask our kids to fund that through taxation revenue at some future point. So that's that's my very, very starting point. And if you start from there and you say, okay, some sort of retirement savings scheme is uh, attractive. Again, these are layering assumptions here. There's two different solutions. One is a very, very, very simple long-term solution, which is if you believe in the power of compound returns and you think that capitalism is not going to die in the next X years between the kid who's born tomorrow morning and their 65th or 67th or 70th birthday, whatever the retirement age is by then, you can put a very, very small amount of money in, in absolute and relative terms aside for that child, which would compound at reasonably decent historic rates to be pension-ish, super-ish levels by retirement. Now, that could that number could be as low, depending on your assumptions, as four grand or as high as about 20 grand. And I, that, that, that's a big range, right? For some people listening, it's like, that's a massive range. But at birth, funded potentially by government, frankly, and they're put aside and left in a, in a individual or even pooled, to Cam's original point, pooled account, so that at retirement age, whatever that is, the money would have compounded over that time. It saves the average the average employee, and I've done this numbers for a while, the average employee on, or the employer on behalf of the employee, assuming no concessional contributions, will contribute something like 350 odd grand to super on behalf of their employee during that person's working life compared to somewhere between four and 20 grand at birth. Now, there are inflationary, you know, CPI indexing we should do to those numbers, but as an idea, that's a very, very attractive starting point for me. So that, that's my first idea, really super simple. The money's there, the money comes out, it needs to be managed in retirement. By the way, Different thing. I'd also make. Uh, I'd limit the amount of money people could take out of super every year, so they don't take the lump sum out, blow it on you know exciting things, and then get another pension. So that's different again. So that's the first idea. Second idea is is, is taking the current system and just. I'm gonna. Can I read this very quickly? It's not. It's not too boring. It's not too long. Uh, but I wrote it, and it's kind of just because it summarizes my thoughts nicely. It'll give us. So I said, here we go. Starting with the status quo on super is the wrong framing for a principal discussion. Framing matters. Super was designed to relieve pressure on retirement funding, not as a wealth creation or an estate planning tool. Logically, it makes sense to incentivize saving and investing to build a large enough nest egg to deliver pension replacing income, plus a little more for the vagaries and risks of investing, and to recognize the money was quarantined during their working lives. Uh, Keeping with that logic, concessionary taxation should cease at a level of both contribution and income or withdrawal that exceeds that level. Because after that point, the cost of super exceeds that of the pension it seeks to replace. Uh, It's also why we shouldn't focus, in my view, on the fund balance, but rather the size of the income stream and tax that income accordingly. So what I would do is I would simply allocate tax advantage on accumulation during our working lives. I think that makes sense because we want people to generate those nest eggs. Again, assuming you take my starting assumption of saving for our own retirement. Once you retire and start drawing an income stream, my personal view, I would make all retirement income, let's say 65, let's let's give Cammy's two years back of retirement age and say it's 65. Yay. <laughs> At 65, we should increase the tax-free threshold to a number. I don't know what that is. Call it 45 grand. And Cam, don't, don't kill me on the numbers. Mm-hmm. You'll have a better idea yeah, yeah. because you're the economist. Call it 45 grand. Every dollar you receive, including, this is going to be a bit random too, including a pension would be taxable Right, but because the tax-free threshold might be say forty-five grand, there's no tax payable on it. Every hour you wanted to work in retirement, you could do, and again, it would be taxable when you earn more than that threshold. So it doesn't mean people get penalised for re-entering the workforce, losing the pension, losing healthcare cards, whatever. And superannuation payments would equally be taxable on the same basis. So every year you would declare your entire income, pension plus work plus super, and that gets taxed at a marginal tax rate of 
15, 30, 45%, potentially higher for that five, person of $510 million. That's a different conversation. I would simply make it marginally taxable. I think you would take you would take away 90% of the superannuation regulation. You wouldn't have an accumulation account and a pension account. You wouldn't have some cap that somehow, how do you mandate a cap? Do you make people take out the difference? I don't know, I don't know what you do. So I think it's, it's a politician and bureaucratic answer. It's You mentioned the polls before, Cam. If I didn't have to worry about the polls, this is easy. If I had to worry about the polls, it's harder. But I would, yeah, I would yeah. simply tax all income marginally with a higher than working age tax-free threshold to allow for you want to get some of that tax money or the, the super money tax-free. By the way, and then in retirement, I wouldn't have a 0% super. I'd still have the 15% taxation on all super earnings right through life and a payout, which would be taxed marginally. So that, that, they're two step, very, very different answers. Um, I wouldn't mind which one of them we go with. So can I, can I just ask one more clarifying question, Scott, about your ideal system. Go on. Yeah, go on. So this compulsory savings, when when can you start withdrawing it? So one of the big bizarre elements of the system we have is that you can withdraw your super at age, well, it's, it's incrementing up from age 57 to age 60, but you can't get an age pension until you're 67 now. So you've got this it was ten. It was like nine years before the age pension age. Now it's going to be seven years before, and you've got this huge incentive to actually work less and retire earlier, right? Because the super system age that you can access this money is lower. So you know, if everyone's working less and retiring earlier, that shrinks the size of the economy and makes it more difficult to look after the non-workers, right? So correct, it's doing the correct. exact opposite of what we think our retirement income system could do. So, so if you've paid any attention to the debates about aging and all these old people not working, our super system makes more not-so-old people stop working, right? And the huge incentive in the system is to take all of your money at 57 or 60, whatever the number is today because it's ratcheting up, go on a trip around Australia, buy a Land Cruiser, <laughs> fix your house, right. and then get the age pension. Yep. And yep. I, you know, my parents have just gone through this age pension age period and everybody's all about getting the age pension. Like, you know, so so essentially the whole system has all these huge tax breaks for people who don't need them so that people who are 60 can go on a driving holiday around Australia and get the age pension anyway. And there's nothing stopping this, right? Correct. And Correct. one other issue that comes up a lot is people with all this in their 60s, there's all these financial scams and whatnot they get caught up with because they've all of a sudden got this huge amount of super that they can access and everybody's willing to sell them in the next financial scam. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. uh, what, what are your thoughts on the age? If in, in an ideal compulsory saving system, is the age the same? And What's your general view? Sorry for taking over the hosting, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving it. Well, let's know when you need it, Matt. Your sort of view on – so we've ratcheted up the age pension age. Now, I think that's kind of silly because, as you've already said, Scott, you can have an age pension and people working at the same time. There's no issue with that. Yeah, so your thoughts on the age of super and age pension? So I think I think the easy easy answer is they should be the same. I think you can though modify them in two different ways. The first is if you mandate the maximum uh, withdrawal, then it puts less pressure on the buyer land crews to go on the pension thing. So it may not be an age that's required. It may be a maximum withdrawal per year or per year at certain ages. So you might say up until 67, you can take out 1% of your fund and then at 67, it's 2%. Or yeah, you, you, may, you may be able to do it without doing it by age. Because I, I think there is some benefit. If you have, if if I had eighty four million dollars in super because I invested well, right? Let, let's put aside caps and contributions. Let's just say I've contributed normally, invested really well, I've got eighty four million dollars. At, at sixty, if I, I don't see the benefit, as long as if I could, if I could guarantee you that I was never going to use the pension because I have enough money in super, 
denying me access to it also seems a little bit counterproductive because there's no societal benefit to that to that denial. So there's that. And I think the other thing, by the way, we should probably a bit big for this podcast, but there's a labor force question, right, of with unemployment now at 3.4%, everyone who wants a job generally can get one with massive exceptions, but let's go with that. At some point when unemployment's 8%, making people stay in the workforce because they can't get super who would otherwise yes. take the super yes. versus someone who wants a job and can't get it because the old person's in the job. I, I want old people to be able to keep working. I think we should be ageist about it in either direction. Yes. So I, I wouldn't necessarily mandate the – I think it would be – you could do it by direct age and if you're going to do it by age, it should be equal. I think there's no there's no justification for it to be different uh, with the exception that I think you could say to someone with enough means – you may withdraw X percent of your superannuation from age whatever. I don't know what that age is, by the way, because I have a guarantee by by virtue of the structure of your super fund, you couldn't possibly take it all out because I'm limiting you to X percent of the of the value. So again, that's not popular. I wouldn't get voted in doing it. It'd have to be the demic, the, uh, the, the the autocratic president of Australia to get away with that. But that's what I would. Yes. Do. Okay. So I, I'm going to respond to some of the first things you said. I know you've got a list of questions here, Matt, but uh, I think we're no, doing it just great. a bit keep, out of order. Just just roll with it, guys. <laughs> keep going. It's great. So I think one of the fundamental disagreements we have about the need for this is this idea of compounding returns. Right, that somehow we are paying twice for retirement. And for me, that is a huge myth, right? Because if I buy BHP shares and in retirement I live off the dividends or the sale, that money I'm spending in retirement was the money from the buyers of iron ore, right? And the buyers of my uh, shares that I'm selling to them. So they are transferring me their resources when I retire via this financial system instead of retransferring the resources via the tax system. So there's no sort of time travel involved here, right? <laughs> That's my big thing. So if yeah. you, we can support people with a super system when they're retired and say, hey, the super is going to allow us to look after these old people. Well, the tax system can allow us to as well because the economy is big enough. We have the resources. It's just the method by which we transfer those resources to those people who don't have them. And remember, super doesn't really transfer anything unless you've already got the economic means. So it's not really doing a lot. So that's an, another way to make that same point is that, yes, investments in asset markets compound over time tax revenue and the size of the economy also compounds over time, right? So, so those benefits of compound interest exist in the economy as a whole in general. And hence, you know, if we can support people in retirement through one means, we can support them through the other. There's only, as I like to say, there can be only one, right? <laughs> there can be only one. Here's uh, the high on the map. We know that we've the just high, found out. It's the, my highland of yeah, uh, <laughs> take on retirement. There, there is only one system and that transfers resources to retired people when they need it. So the car they buy, the food they drink, the services they get, they all are produced at the time. We're not stocking up cans of baked beans and cans of fuel in the, thing, in the garage for the car. We're not consuming today's resources in the future. What we're doing is we're transferring future resources from the economy as a whole, from others at the time they're needed. So that's, I think a fundamental part of perhaps why why we still disagree at the the obvious conclusion that we don't need any of this prefunding because for example that $10,000 you give every child in this account when they retire 
you can just transfer the money into their account when they retire at the time of the amount you want them to have at the age you want them to have it. You don't need to have that account the whole way through. That doesn't do anything because all you're doing is swapping money. You're just basically swapping who owns you know, BHP shares and who owns a bank deposit at time zero when you're born. And that doesn't change anything about the macro economy, right? You're just saying, okay, you've, we're going to make this account. You own BHP shares here. I'll give you cash. You have my shares. Okay. Now somehow we're compounding and making the economy better in the future. So I think that's a big difference. And the other thing I wanted to pick up on about compulsory savings as a system in general is that, you know, the economically optimal way to smooth consumption over your lifetime. And that's what we're all about here, right? We're smoothing consumption over lifetimes because we think that when people are children, they don't have any money, so we need to give parents money for children. When people are retired, they don't have any money. Well, some don't, so we need to give those some who don't have money, money, right? Because they're the low points of your life. But in reality, okay, the low points of your life probably these days go up to your 30s. If So I, I wrote an article last year comparing essentially my situation with two young kids in my 20s and my household after-tax income, like my disposable income, as a renter household, age 28, with two children. And I'm like, the retirees have way more money. Retirees who own their own home, they have way more money than I do. Why am I giving up 10% of my income? And of course, I was working for university, so I was giving up 17% of my income. And I'm sitting here thinking, hang on, the government is paying me parenting payments because they think I'm too poor. And they're also saying, you're too rich. We need to have some of your money so we can, you can have it later when you're actually richer than you are now. So the economically optimal way to smooth consumption is essentially borrow like crazy when you're young, spend every single dollar plus more. Then when you're in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, highest income years, pretty much save 50% of what you earn and then spend it later, right? But what we're doing is we're really depressing those early years of your life the incomes of young people, right, who are already going to be richer when they retire for no particular reason, just because we have pretended that we want some type of accounting system for our retirement fund that keeps everyone happy politically. We've essentially made every Australian age under 30 poor because it makes us feel good and pretend that we've got savings. And that for me is like, you know, it's scary how powerful that is. Because at the end of the day, we're not about you know, life is not about, as you say, Matt, you know, it's not about how much is in your bank. It's about having a good life and being flexible because you've got secure income, right? And you can, you've got lots of options. Um, so you're 20 something renting household. I, I just, I have this fictitious person in my mind. You've just had twins. You're age 24. Okay. You're slaving away. You're an apprentice of some sort. And everyone's like, yeah, man, you've got too much money. We're going to take 10% because the guys who are selling you BHP shares, they need the money, not you. And I just think that's like so insulting, you know. So, so, so anyway, that's my rant about income smoothing. Uh, and, and just to, just to finish on a little agreement with Scott, I think it's New Zealand that has a universal pension at uh, age 65, which is a pay as you go, taxpayer funded, funded pension where where you can work on that pension and not have any tax effects so new zealand you know has a pretty decent i don't even think we need that level to improve on having super i think getting rid of in super is a net improvement without changing our age pension system but if you also reduce the qualifying age and 
and tweet some of those work incentives like uh, Scott was mentioning so that if you are on the pension and work, you don't like lose a lot of your income, you know. But again, if we're going to raise that issue, I tell you what, if you have three kids uh, and a low income, sometimes you're paying 100% you, you, you know, you can earn $20,000 extra and get no, nothing extra in your bank account. So that's a general design issue of our tax and welfare system, which I think everyone would agree we need to fix. But I think it's just become a, a priority right now because we're talking about super. It is stupid how badly broken. David Plunkett on Twitter, for those who are on Twitter. Oh, he's great. He's got some fantastic graphs of what happens to your disposable income depending on your circumstances in terms of, you know, parenting payments coming in and out, uh, you know, family tax benefit A, B, uh, all that sort of stuff. Some, some of those graphs that show you how absolutely stupid, like mindlessly banal the tax system is. And these are smart people designing this stuff, or at least in, in Treasury. The policy center break it and then unbreak it and break it again. Um, and, and that's what I'm saying. You know, whether we end up fixing or scrapping super, I think we can at least agree, and I think we are largely agreeing at 75% plus of this, which is just, hey, the system's fundamentally stupid. Let, let's actually fix it so it works in, but in favor of society in a much better way. The, the honest thing, the, the, the big the big question here, the big you know unanswered one is someone someone loses right, someone's paying more tax for some of this stuff to happen. Yes, and that's not that's not unreasonable. Uh, I, I'm a capitalist, I'm an investor. A lot of my members want me to make them as much money as physically possible, and a, a decent subset of those would say, and I'd love to, like to pay less tax, please. And I get to because I'm just fortunate in the job I've got to say, I hear you. I don't have to just you know fight your corner because I'm your I'm your representative for better or worse. I get to say actually policy wise, there's some really really screwy terrible policies out there that just do not work the way they should. And there are some people, newsflash, who should pay more tax. And that's really politically yeah. unpopular, again, to, to Cam's point. Um, yeah. some, some guts in Canberra, bipartisan guts preferably, so, hey, this doesn't work, let's fix it. Not going to happen, right? But th- that, that is p- part of it is absolutely the structure of the tax system. You fix some of that stuff, including, I, I, I agree with you, I actually found out about New Zealand, Cam, only two or three days ago. I should have known more about New Zealand, but I didn't. Uh, to exactly yeah. that point, a universal pension, it's effectively a UBI, which is, again, a whole different conversation, universal basic income. But a universal pension with a marginal marginal taxation system for additional revenue over and above that solves a very large chunk of these problems. Um, and it's not even difficult, right? And, and imagine, imagine how much super stuff you could take away. If you said no caps, no separate pension account, no zero tax in retirement, you know, no, no, no assets testing, pension testing, means testing for some of these benefits because everyone gets the pension. It, now, there are people who say, hang on, that's just, you know, people say about early childhood education. That's just, you know, middle class, upper class welfare. I think we can say something's universal. I think primary education should be universal. I think early childhood education should be universal. And I think it's reasonable to say a pension should be universal, above which you then pay marginal ta- rates of tax up Correct. to 45%. Not this ridiculous 0% up to 1.7 million and then 15% above that. Yeah, I just want to wrap up the the point uh, that we're going to – just let's wrap up on this agreement that I I fear the direction we're going with super. So back to reality land now and not our ideal worlds. Back in reality, I fear that instead of simplifying all these ways that we suggest doing, (laughs) simplifying the age pension, simplifying super – reducing yep. the administrative burden to get a better system, we're going to go the other way. And we're going to basically do a make-work exercise for financial managers and tax accountants. And and that that should really be top of mind for all the policy people involved. And I think I think we agree on that. thousand percent. I was going to bring something like that up, Cam, because I know where you sit, Cam. You've written literature. I've read it, Scrapping the System. It was quite eye-opening for me because I've never really seen that point of view. Super to me, I mean, it makes so much sense. Your point before, Scott, with 
put in $4,000 away for every child, whatever it was, 10000 and letting it compound until they reach, reach their preservation age. That makes so much sense in my mind. I don't know. I know, you know, you've got different opinions, Cameron, but just logically, I'm like, that. why isn't every country doing that? But uh, here's the thing I wanted uh, to bring up, and I think I know Cam's point of view, but I'm interested to hear yours, um, Scott. By the way, uh, New Zealand have the Kiwi Saver as well. I just wanted to mention that. Yes, so they've they've got like a similar thing to the super, right? It's not just this, um, you know, pension system. Both is fine, by the way. I will. I, 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 Pam probably doesn't agree. I think we can do both. I think that that's. But the point is, you tax it appropriately so that anyone earning extra income just pays tax on it. Yeah. So Kiwi Kiwi Saver is voluntary, though, right? Oh, uh, is it? Okay, I didn't know yeah. that. It's voluntary. Okay. So here's the thing, right? Because I think the crux of the the argument is. Do we actually need both? Now, I know where Cam sits on this. He would say scrap super. And this is my question to you, Scott. The pension, to my knowledge, is is pretty good in Australia. I mean, I just Googled it. It's what? For a couple combined, $1,500 per fortnight. Now, if we make a few assumptions there, like the main one being, I guess, if, is do you own your own home outright? I don't know the data and maybe Cam, step in whenever you want to, to tell me or maybe you know Scott as well. But if you're- 65, 60, whatever it is, you're not going to be spending as much. I know the peak uh, income years are between like 30 and 45 or something. And that's when you're spending the most. When you have children, you're paying for school, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to be, get a bigger house. So is it not reasonable that most Australians can live a pretty decent life on the combined pension? And therefore, do we actually need a whole nother system? I know there's going to be edge cases. There's going to be exceptions to that rule. But to me, it just seems like I'm not fully educated on, on this topic to know exactly the answer to this. But I'm once I read Cam's, I'm like, yeah, why do we actually need a whole nother super system? And Cam's point as well is part of your money, 10%, is going to this fund that you can access when you reach your preservation age, when a lot of people could use that money in their 30s and 40s. Scott. So it's a, we get into we get into values pretty quickly and we and we get into behavioral versus theoretical and and so it gets it gets messy real fast. I think the pension is a very good base level of retirement income. And we all agree we, we need the pension. We I think we're all in agreement. Like the pensions are fantastic. Yes. Yeah. But but so when I say when I say pretty good, I mean I'm talking about the level of it, not not whether it should be delivered or not. I don't think the pension is as high as as a society we should aspire to for a standard of living in retirement. For a couple of reasons. Now, I'm not going to go into housing because, frankly, we need to fix housing, and I'm sure we could have another conversation for another hour and a half on housing. Uh, we, we can't assume people own their own homes, which is which is a crazy to me that you can now banks are offering now 40 year mortgages, right? So let's put that aside. You can 1500 bucks a fortnight is a is a is a decent, good, acceptable level of retirement income. Maybe it's my capitalist tendencies, but I would aspire to for everybody in the country to have a retirement income which was. A, a more to use to a dignified level of, of income. I don't think there's, there's no pensioners out there having a, having a whale of a time, right? That they are they are subsisting. They're doing okay. Uh, probably hasn't kept up with price inflation as we well know. So whether we increase the pension itself or whether we have a supplementary system, and again, Cam would say the former, I would say the latter. But uh, again, I'm, I'm not even I'm not even like I'm not here to defend super in, in and of itself. I could probably be persuaded, or I wouldn't hate it if, if we said actually, so you know, 45 grand a year pension. I'd probably well, okay. Now we're starting to talk about something similar. Um, so maybe it's the level of the pension or level of retirement income is again to Cam's original point what we're discussing here. I I would, but again, remember the size of the the supplementary super needn't be huge because I would not provide concessional taxation on contributions over a certain amount. I wouldn't allow zero taxation in retirement. So what I'm what I'm saying is that it's the super would be a supplementary 
system on top of a moderate pension, which I think is something we could or should aspire to. So uh, my mother's retired. She's 73. Should get that right, shouldn't I? Um, uh, you know, and, and and so you know, I think I think pension is is okay, but I I got to say I would like to think people on pension would would have more money in retirement, not so they can afford the everyone gets a two hundred thousand dollars land cruise and goes around the country to Camps Point, but so there, there is there's more than just subsistence. Thanks for working. Here's just enough to keep you alive for the rest of your lives. And I think my key difference with Cam a little bit is while you're right about the higher income levels, mate, in terms of people saving, we also know from experience in Australia pre super and around the world circumstantially and behaviorally, people don't tend to. And I think there is, let's use the word nanny state or paternalistic, call it what you want. There is an element of me saying, actually, I know what we will do as a group. I, I did I did economics at school, right? I didn't say started saving properly independently of super until I was 26. And I rude those missing seven or eight years because I know the value of compounding over that time. I knew the answers. Did I do it? No. Uh, I've got family who wouldn't be doing it now if super didn't exist. I think it is a really, really handy behavioural nudge, to use that overused word. Um, it's not really a nudge, it's a compulsion, but you know what I mean, to actually to actually achieve some of that stuff. So, you know, behaviourally we wouldn't. Some will, the top echelon will. I would hazard a guess that the average Australian in, let's say, 30 years when super has been going long enough to be a full workforce, the average Australian will retire with, with a better lifestyle than they would have had had super not existed. And if, that, if that's our fundamental starting point, and you guys might disagree, which is cool, go for it. If that's, if that's your fundamental starting point, then I think super's proved its use as a compulsory system. Again, not defending the tax breaks, not defending anything. Like I'm not saying we should give what it is. I'm saying as a, as a concept, as a structural concept, compulsory saving for retirement, I think will show itself to have been worthwhile, albeit it was bastardized along the way and people took advantage of it and the tax system was robbed of tens of well, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, maybe over over that life of of rightful tax revenues. So it's true that it's it's imperfect, vastly imperfect. But I also think we did it with a better, well, with a better retirement standard of living with super than without it. Can I just say one thing, Cam? Can you talk about because this is a really important topic in the whole this whole debate? The super industry uh, is massive, and I think in your your literature and your 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 writings, you talk about how it's close. There is there is the number of people working in the super industry is as much as the Australian Defence Force or something like that. And to me, that blows my mind. I think that's just a really good point to bring up, Cam. Yeah. So the question, so there's a couple of things that just came up. Uh, uh, one is, will future retirees be better off t- than today? I-, I would like that to be the case, full stop, if society is progressing, right? Like if we have degraded as a society that we can't improve the lives of age pensioners over the next decades... Uh, despite becoming wealthier, then you know that's a bit of a sad political environment to live in. Which is almost my point, Cam. Unfortunately, that that that's literally almost my problem. Yeah. So your so your point is yeah, yeah. But I think it's probably one of the big divides is that there's you know and and you see this in the commentary on super. It's like you can't trust the future government, right? You know, you can't trust them to look after pensioners. Now, I, I think that's overblown because. Uh, people over 67 are just still growing as a voting cohort, right? And you try and you put the age pension up a couple of years, you get voted out like uh, the Labor Party did. And I think that's another, sorry, just a quick sidetrack, make sure I get back onto what I was going to say. The Labor Party, uh, we've got this complete reversal politically. We've got the Labor Party ratcheting up the pension age to get kick people off the pension and privatizing retirement in some of the world's most expensive fund managers with the tax breaks to the highest income. That's our left-wing party in Australia, right? And we've got our right-wing party basically saying, hey, 
defending you. What a great weekend. game! Can my can my mates at the, my banks please come and play as well? Right, and we've got no one there going. Hey, you know people who are working. You know those people. Sometimes they need their money when they're working. Right. Do we not care about young people? So I think, you know, partly the debate is symptomatic of just, you know, we're all getting old and richer, older people are getting more powerful voices. And and have I heard anything about 20-something-year-old families in the super debate? Because they're paying 10% of their income at their lowest income points in their life with their highest expenses of their whole lives, supporting four or five people in one household. Absolute silence because that's the flip side of super is that those people having a worse quality of life today. So, yes, we should increase the quality of life for age pensioners, but I think that's true also of working people as well. And that's, you know, so that's the flip side of that. Uh, you know, anyone can spend 20% of their income in their 20s, 30s and 40s and have a lot of money in retirement. You've just wasted your life, right? And, of course, you know, 5% of you died before you got your money as well, right? So that's another thing we don't think about is people all don't die at the same time. Still one in six men will die before they get the age pension. So super did nothing for them and probably one in 10 die before they get the super. So basically just stole their money in a way, made their lives worse on balance. So any, any net benefit calculation you want to, you want to do for these systems has to take your thing and multiply by 0.9 for the age pension, 0.83 for the whatever those factors are because people die at different points. So Scott's other point was, you know, there's some value judgment here. And I think it, at the end of the day, all of these economic debates come down to value judgments. And and, all, and, and it's probably easier for us because we predominantly agree on, on some of these key issues. But here, here's a statement. People should spend their money. Money is for spending, right? <laughs> like that is the whole point of being a wealthy economy is people can spend money. Right. So this whole, you know, the idea that people won't save for retirement, I say, yeah, why would they? Right. Remember the bottom third of people when they get the age pension, it's a pay rise for them. So this, it's stupid for them. Right. It's, it's, it's completely nonsense for the next sort of third of households. You know, it's 50 50 doesn't really matter. Some of them are going to save and the top 30%, it doesn't matter anyway, because they're, they're independently wealthy their whole working lives. So I just don't see that there is a some moral value to not spending your money while you're alive and have high expenses. So I've got two kids at high school, right? And I'm sitting here going, oh, I'm worried about the future, this and that. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, I could die in five years, right? Why would I not spend everything I can today to have the best life possible? And so it's, it makes perfect sense to me. And remember, you know, we don't need... We don't need this sort of moral virtue of saving if we ensure as a collective in the age pension system, which we do, right? Because this system will automatically tax and redistribute those with wealth and with high incomes and even those on middle incomes and even working, you know, young people. Uh, it will automatically do the job for you without having to sort of, you know, have this moral debate at all about what's good, what's bad, is it moral to save, is it thriftiness a virtue? It doesn't matter. We're just all insured automatically you know, when I buy my car insurance, it works. I do it because it works. And yet we're here when it comes to retirement going, oh, yeah, we should definitely not insure. We should definitely not pull the risks. We should definitely do this other thing. I'm like, what? It just blows my mind. It makes no sense. And, and to finish, you know, if, if we want to tie retirement incomes to working life incomes, right, if we want people who earn more during their working life to have more in retirement, which we might do as a, you know, social objective, you can also tie the pension to previous earnings as well, right? So some countries, 
uh, in retirement go, you know, you get 70% of your average income of the last 10 years of your working life and then it goes down to 50%, right, until the, until the minimum. So you could, you could do that as well. And that system as a whole would be far more efficient in terms of resources, in terms of those 45,000 spreadsheet monkeys, you know, trying to second guess each other. Which with, with which way Apple shares are going to go or whether Bitcoin's the future. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people to be working in the, the system. And, and, and just remember, the superannuation system as a whole lost 20% of its value after the financial crisis, right? So it's not like it's, um, you know, and sorry, a bit tangential and a, a final point. We're sort of tying our whole social uh, welfare system to these financial markets and then that becomes a huge, huge incentive to politically sort of give advantages to financial operators because then they can go, hey, this is your savings. <laughs> we need more of this. We need this. Uh, you know, so you're sort of uh, politically hitching your ride to essentially all these financial scammers and whatnot. I know you're going to jump in, Matt. Let me very quickly just say from a fun, from just from a fund management perspective, I actually agree with you both. I, I, <laughs> my, my default fund would be a version of the, super, the future, future fund. So I, I think, again, it's one of those questions of, do, do we need a ditch suit because there's 45,000 spreadsheet monkeys? I don't think so. I think we should have three spreadsheet monkeys at the future fund investing in ETFs. And then if yeah. you want to separate out, they can Great. do that. But I think part, so part of it, again, we agree on the problem. I think there is there are a range of solutions which go from as it is to get rid of super. To my view, a default fund would just be, a, 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 honestly, a, a future fund as the, the government default, probably not the super fund itself or maybe, it doesn't really matter, uh, but I would invest in ETFs, super low cost. Your cost would be a fraction, a tiny fraction of a percentage of 1%. Yeah, that's. I was going to quickly say, Cam, and I'll, I'll, I'll just butt in. I'll give you the last word. <laughs> I'll give you the last word, Cam, but we'll, we'll move on after I give you the last word because I'm, I'm on my first question. We're going to have to split this podcast into <laughs> well, to two parts. We've answered the last three already, Matt. I'm looking well, at it. We just, we we'll, just we'll, took we'll, it upon ourselves to do it we'll in reverse we'll go back. We'll, we'll go back. But I was going to say uh, just quickly that – I think that is a really good point, Scott, you made. I think we all agree on this. To have 45,000 Australians working in this industry, I just feel like that is so much so much of the economy or, or so much- Human capital. That's the word I'm looking for. Human capital tied up cost, in this. Right? Yes. Exactly. It just seems so simple- that you that you you're putting forty five thousand people to do what exactly? And you and some of these funds are charging ridiculous fees. Like there is some gouging going on and some like some BS happening in this industry that makes it very um, inefficient. But it's not it's not only gouging, right? It's the duplication that's the problem. So the gouging is real. Don't get me wrong. But the profit margins of these guys aren't spectacular. You know, Magellan's lost a squillion dollars recently. Uh, you know, so part of it's absolutely gouging. And retail funds are terrible. And everyone should be an industry fund. I can't give personal advice, yeah. but just be an industry fund if you're going to. But it's a duplication. So of the 45,000 spreadsheet monkeys, 10,000 is any one point in time are looking at BHP, right? And so yeah. it's not just the gouging. It's And look at that. And they've got, they've got bills to pay and they've got families. So it's not it's not a dead loss to the economy because they're employed doing a thing and that's that's worth something. But in terms of productivity as economically, the, both the gouging and the duplication could be removed really quickly. I'm going to shut up now, Matt. You can ask questions. No, no, you're right. And I think, Scott, you probably, you'd probably agree that the more rules we make, the more compliance requirements yes, you get yes, yes. on these funds. Yeah, and so yeah, they're all crazy. just – you've got this array of people checking on other people to check on this, to check on some more paperwork, to liaise with the legal department and then liaise with the tax office. And, and you know, the, the, that, that just breeds a whole bureaucracy 
bureaucratic industry. So, so we mentioned it before. We've got to go the opposite direction on terms of rules. And by the way, three quarters of people with SMSF shouldn't have them. So that would also take a whole lot of costs out, which again, a whole different conversation, but it's part of that duplication problem. Mm. Okay, let's leave it there. I mean, this, this is just, that's such a great conversation, guys. Really thoroughly enjoying this, uh, but we do have to move on. Okay, guys, leaving it there for now. We're going to release the second half of this episode next Friday, so make sure you keep your eyes peeled for that. As always, if you're enjoying these episodes, feel free to leave me a rating or review in whichever app that you listen to your podcast in. See you in the next episode. Catch ya. Thanks for listening to another episode. For all the show notes, head over to aussiefirebug.com. Never miss another episode by subscribing to Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Nothing in this episode should be taken as personal financial advice. You should always do your own research when making any financial decision.